0: Hi readers! Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Adriana Trigiani is the New York Times bestselling author of 20 books, including The Shoemaker's Wife. Among her screen credits, Trigiani wrote and directed the major motion picture adaptation of her debut novel, Big Stone Gap. Her latest work is The Good Left Undone, a lush and immersive novel about three generations of Tuscan artisans with one remarkable secret. Epic in scope and resplendent with the glorious themes of identity and belonging, The Good Left Undone unfolds in breathtaking turns. Now let's join author Adriana Trigiani in conversation with her editor, Maya Ziv.
1: Adri, it's so good to be in the same room with you.
2: Isn't it great? I mean, there are plexiglass. You know, I feel like I'm, <laughs> we're doing an episode of Cagney and Lacey, and they're trying to find the killer. But it's really great to see you.
1: Oh, so great to see yeah. you. Yeah,
2: Um
1: So The Good Left Undone, which we have worked on
2: for virtually. 100, for 157 <laughs> years. Exactly. Like.
1: Um, that I can't wait for readers to discover in April. Um, so the title. Tell well, yeah, us about yeah.
2: it. You know, the title is... Really, everything. Uh, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, oddly enough, for the first time in one of my novels, France plays a role. Scotland has played a role before, but now it's very prominent. And of course, Italy. I found uh, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux's warnings. And his warnings were if you wanted to get to heaven, here's what you need to do. And they're hanging in a church at the foot of the mountain that my grandmother was born and raised on in northern Italy, above Bergamo, in a town called Sotto il Monte. And I kept a copy, and then I actually found them later. There's variations of it. But basically, The Good Left Undone is one of the aspects you should contemplate from the past. And there were three in the past, three in the present, and three in the future. And the novel is broken into three swaths of time. So beginning in the present, there are three things, if if you want to get to heaven. And one is heed these warnings. And one is the evil done, the good left undone, and the time wasted. And as we were working like little soldiers during the pandemic the idea of time really worked its way into the novel in a very interesting way and certainly uh, the in a very thoughtful part of the narrative arc that became really Matilda's life who is the main character she's telling the story can we be argued that her mother's the main character because it's the story of her mother which affects the daughter.
1: Um, so, Adri, you mentioned Matilda, and I would love for you to tell listeners about the three women who really anchor the story mm-hmm. and a little bit about where
2: we meet them. Well, you know, I spend part of every day really thinking about my grandmothers and my mother. I, I don't care what day it is. It's every day. There's something that comes up that I think of them. If I'm not actually sharing a story or explaining something by way of example to my daughter, or um, if we're having a conversation, they come up. And I wanted to do a story that really showed the strength of the line of women and really addressed what it means to be a matriarch, and what is that job, that unpaid, unskilled, you come into it, it's an emotional job, and you're in charge of the family story. And there's a line in there that we talked about a lot, a family's only as strong as their stories. And the stories are relayed by women. So Matilda has a funny name for an Italian girl. Her name is Matilda Raffo. Raffo's not, that's very Italian, but her name's Matilda, Cabrelli, Raffo, but you find out that she's also Scottish. Now, the family probably knew this because during the war, there was great mixing going on, the French, Germans, all through Europe, you know, people were in flight. But this particular story, the, the, the story of Matilda, was untold largely, and so she wants her daughter, Nicolina, to know it. They know bits of it. And, they're, and Nicolina's daughter, Anina, who's engaged to be married. And then when we go into the past, it's Domenica, who is Matilda's mother. So you're going to get all of those stories. They're very rich in this book and how they play into the story of the family. You know, it was interesting. I was thinking about this, Maya. They have a family business, and if you grew up with self-employed family business people, whether it was a grocery store or gas station, in this case, they're gem cutters for the Vatican. It sounds lofty, but they didn't make any money till they went into business business where they could sell like, people their engagement rings and stuff, and, which happened after World War II in the 50s. There's a, there's a kind of a thing in a working family. It's always about the work and the business and the hours and who's going to open the store and who's going to close it and who's counting the money and the money gets put in the refrigerator till it can go to the bank or all of the the cash, you know. There wasn't time for the exploration of the past. And interestingly enough, in Italy, with all the antiquities, there's an expectation that you know the story. And of course, they didn't.
1: And if you could just tease out a little bit about the story because I love it so much, and Dominica's story, not to give it away, but it spans continents and history um,
2: and the swath of her life, totally from birth to death. Uh, and and interesting how we that all of that was handled because the book, you know, they call it historical fiction, but frankly, I think it could t- it takes place in the present. Because it's about a woman who knows her days are numbered and she's got to do some things before she goes and she wants to feel that peace. And so you sort of feel at the beginning of the novel that she's not ready and there's a lot for her to do, but she's she she doesn't leave the good undone. She's going to get it done by the end of the book.
1: And at the heart of the story, as you've said, there's an untold story of what happened to Italians in Scotland during World War II, which I am Embarrassed? I never knew until reading your novel. I I don't
2: think you should be embarrassed because uh, our U.K. partners, MJ, at uh, Penguin Random House in, in the U.K., they didn't know it. Friends of mine didn't know it. I found one person who had heard about it, but I'll tell you who does know it are the Italian Scots. They know the story. Pretty much every family up there lost someone. Wild. And Mm -hmm. I really love the
1: story of how you came to unearth this history, if you don't mind sharing. Well,
2: there I was in Glasgow by myself, waiting for my husband and daughter to arrive. The weekend before I began filming, I was directing a film called Then Came You 2020, written by and starring Kathy Lee Gifford and Craig Ferguson, who lives there. And I made a list of places. I had been to Glasgow on book tour many times with the great Nigel Stoneman, and I never had a chance to really explore the city, so I made a list of places I wanted to see. And I I, I would say I'm I'm fascinated by so many things, but I was fascinated by these cathedrals that were once Catholic, then they flipped to Protestant, and then they flipped back to Catholic. So I went to St. Andrew's Cathedral. It was within walking distance of my hotel. Started with the A's. I mean, I'm not that creative. I did that, planned my day, but... It was close and started with an A. So I got there, and there was a wedding happening. And I stood in the back in the foyer. This is pre-COVID. And um, because Italians think it's good luck to see a bride on her wedding day, okay? So I thought, well, I need all the luck I can get. So I stood in the back of the church, and then it began to dawn on me. I was listening to the music of the mass, and it were. It was all the songs and hymns my mother had chosen for her funeral. And my mother had died six months earlier. So I believe in signs, and I took it as a big old sign. And, of course, I'm in the back of the church weeping, and it's the bagpiper and me. And the first thing you need to know about um, men, Scott, Scottish men, it, it, they're not having you crying. So he kind of almost turned away. He's in his kilt. He's got his bagpipes. He's like, lady, knock it off. And then I went outside and I began to film him, As and then The Bride came out. And I'm just taking pictures, and I think when I'm in somebody else's event that I, I'm invisible. I, I forget, and I'm just trying to get the picture right, and I'm trying to fool around with the angles of things and think about the movie I'm about to make because there's a wedding in it. When a man says behind me, who are you? And I turned around, and it was the priest that had just married this couple. I said, oh, Father, I'm just a tourist. And he said, why are you here? And I said, I have a job here that I'm doing. I said, but it's just a beautiful wedding, and I, you know, I'm you taking some pictures. He asked me my name, and I told him. And he said, oh, you're Italian. I said, yes, I am, Father, Italian-American. He said, well, then you need to see that garden. So I went over there after I took all my pictures, I actually thought, Okay, and it was unlocked. The, like the gate stood open, and I went inside, and it was this memorial garden with these big shards of mirrors and this and the the quotes on them, the aphorisms, the sayings that I observed were not religious, they were philosophical. So it could have been any religion represented in there and um. I walked through, and there was a creek, and it was very modern next to this ancient cathedral. And I'm like, what is this? There's no instructions, nothing, just these sayings that were haunting and a little stream. So I walked around the outside of it when I came upon the reason for the garden, it's a, and there was a plinth with the names of all the victims of the Arendor star, on July 2nd, 1940, um, and the Arendor Star was one of the Blue Star line of luxury ships requisitioned by the British government before the start of World War II to be naval hospitals and prisoner transport. I I probably would have walked out of there and not ever thought another thing about it, Maya, because I was already engaged in the novel about these gem cutters. And I thought, and by engaged, I mean I had written some scenes and come up with the family and about my modern family in Italy. It was going to be a contemporary novel. And I had such an emotional reaction as I read the names. And then I decided to read them out loud, which was worse. And I cried. And whenever I cry, because I'm not a big crier, it's a sign so between my mother and this i went there's something to this and i couldn't i bagged the rest of the day went back to the hotel and started googling around and then figured out making a few notes how while i was in scotland i'd visit these places and that's how that's how you got it into your hands
1: it's amazing and I know you did so much other research for this novel, mm-hmm. including taking a classic Christie's. That's
2: right about about gems. What about I, gems? I really, you know, I'm I'm like any woman who wants a diamond once in her life or twice in her life, or just likes gemstones. I like to know the value of things and what to look for. But that really wasn't why I took the class. I took the class. My friend Kristen Dornan called me and said, listen, I I, I bought this class and I'm not going to be able to get there and I was going to invite you to go with me and I can't do it, but you take it and go. And it was called Maharashi's and Muggles. And I thought, well, that's not Italy, but I'll go and see what the... And then I found out that even the ring that's on your hand or my hand Started in India. It started in these places. And listen, there's mines all over the world, of course. But I'm talking about when they the gem cutters would go to India, which they did from Italy, which is how you meet Romeo Speranza. And I love that storyline. I love that
1: storyline, too.
2: Because it's, it's really beautiful. It's, it's the... It's what the the Italian Jews went through. You know, as a big fan of the Garden of the finzi Cantinis, the stories, there's many, many stories, thousands of them. But this one struck me because there was a brotherhood amongst the artisans, a brotherhood among the craftsmen. And they relied on each other and they shared stones. None of them got rich. They just loved what they did or were trained in the craft and could cut stone. One on one coast and one in Venice. The Speranzas are in Venice. But they would travel together to India to buy the stone. So what I wanted the reader to, to feel was I wanted them to be with this jewel from the mine all the way through the cutting to the diamond ring that Anina wears for her engagement. I wanted there to be a line just like there's a maternal line I wanted there to be this historical, which is why we go to India at the beginning and the end of the novel. Because India, in this instance, is the mother of it all.
1: And I love those sections so I, much. I do,
2: too. I love India. And as you know, they were much more detailed and bigger. Yes. Um, and I don't like to say bigger because they're pretty big the way they are. But, but I went into the mine and I talked to engineers and... There was some very stunning revelations in there that I was, and and for some reason, it's, it's, it's around my family. Not that, we didn't have coal miners, but my grandfather, the shoemaker, worked in the iron ore mines in Minnesota. And then you find out my northern Italian cousins in the marble mines.
1: So many connections. Yeah. And one of my favorite things about this book is it is such a rich tapestry, and yet, you can't put it down. I just think the way you weave these stories together. Well,
2: that's because they're sex. And that keeps the readers engaged. Uh, you know, if there's a potential for sex, I, I i don't know anybody in the world that doesn't want to find out what happens there. And love, romantic love, familial love.
1: A dashing captain at the I lead. mean, you it's get a
2: dashing sea captain, John Laurie McVickers, who— what, what a great character he is. And that's from being around the Scots. I, I really love the Scots. They're really good people, but they're just – and, you know, I grew up in Appalachia, and it's the same thing.
1: Yeah, and editing this novel with you is such a treat because I haven't been out of the country in two years, going on three. And through your novel, I got to travel to all these places. Makes me happy.
2: It's so transportive. It's, it's very hard not to travel when you're a traveler. It feels as though, and this goes back to the aspect of time. You know, we we've all been we've been basically robbed of it, and uh, there's a cost to that.
1: I agree. Well, and speaking of time, you are a prolific and beloved author of twenty books, Mm -hmm. fiction and nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I think this novel
2: is so special, and I just oh, it's the best. Wondered, yeah, if you want the best look. My goal when I started doing these was just please God let me get better with each one. And I do believe that's the case. Listen, there's always ones that are popular and there's ones that people go what is that? I never heard of it. I mean I don't know why that happens. That's my I think it's I think it's in a sense fate's way of keeping me at it. But at this point in my career I feel a strong sense of purpose and confidence about the work itself. And when you have a great editor, and then you have like Pat Stanko, and you have this whole team around you that swirls like stars over your head, and they all make delivered to the to the to the reader in a very um, direct way. So that it's clear. I mean, this, this novel, um, every sentence, I am proud of. And, and But I felt that way about all my books. But truthfully, Maya, this book is crafted like a jewel. It's nice. faceted but readable. Very readable. I was with teachers yesterday in Brooklyn talking to classrooms. And I slipped them the Advanced Reader's Edition and they are over the moon about it. And everywhere I go now... This is your best one. And I think they say that because the themes that folks have become familiar with through my work, that it has to be personal for me, that there's a craft involved and makes it true. And this is based on a true story, I think makes it all the more against this backdrop of world history. And uh, I think it makes it irresistible for readers because they're going to learn something. They're going to learn something they never heard before because I'd never heard it, and and I, and like I said, the Brits hadn't heard it.
1: Yeah, just unreal. Um, and Adrienne, is this the first time you do past and present perspectives in fiction? Well,
2: I guess so. Yes, Lucia Lucia's book ended, and Lucia Lucia published by Random House. Um, and Ballantyne, the great folks at Ballantyne, was that was a departure for me because I had written three Big Stone Gap novels. So I'd written in the first person, the character of a small town pharmacist. and but that was by design. I wanted to perfect my craft. I wanted to understand what I was doing because Big Stone Gap, I, you know, I, I would call my novelist friends and say, oh, and they because you know, I would written one. And then by the time it was Lucia Lucia, I came to New York in the 1950s and people started to see, oh, 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 that's what you do. So I was a southern novelist. Then it became a woman's, I don't really care if you call me, you know, um, uh, a Tonka truck with with a banana. I don't really care, but it doesn't matter to me, but I was exploring stories through time. And their effect on a family, because everything for me is about family. Everything, everything, everything. I mean, hey, you get it in this one, you know, so much. the island, they don't speak, and they have problems with each other, and the business, who, who got what, they, they didn't get the building, and all of that um, real-life contemporary issues we realize go way back and ribbon back in time.
1: Totally. But I think for me part of what makes the read so propulsive is that toggling back and forth between different – Periods. And even with Domenica, we meet her before the war, leading up to the war, and mm-hmm. then the impact of the war. You meet her as a her.
2: child, so that you understand her nature. Because someday when you're a mother, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's all there. It's like a template's handed to you with this child and you from the time they're a baby. Which by the way makes it makes the makes time feel differently. Right. And if your child is raised, any mother will tell you this, I can go now. Because you just want to get them raised because that's your job. Right. Right? And I wanted that to be the emotional drive of the novel. I wanted it to be, my job is done here. You guys are all right. I can go. And that's tough, but it's inevitable. So why not really dramatize it?
1: And you, think you do it so beautifully.
2: Thank you. Well, I've been on a lot of deathbeds, so that helps.
1: Well, pivoting from your books, mm-hmm. you are such a champion of other people. Um, mm-hmm. And you have an amazing Facebook Live series everyone should go check out. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what sparks joy for you these days. Is there a novel you're reading or a nonfiction?
2: Well, you know, just like when I'm having folks on the show coming up, I just had a gentleman named Daniel Black on the show. And his novel, forgive me, because um, the, the titles now are like when I went why or how I found I don't understand titles. And I'm sure people are saying, well, you, you're, I don't understand your title, but I love my title because I just explained where it came from. But and Daniel would, too. But it's the story of a father who knows he wasn't emotionally available to his gay son. Mm. And what happens? Oh, so it's beautifully great. done, beautifully rendered Daniel Black. Delia Afron's Left on, Left on 10th is is Left on 10th is any woman of any age should read it because Delia tells the story of her widowhood the surprise of it and falling in love again and her life and an illness and her family it is and friendships are really big in it it's every woman's dream read of the spring to me because it's rich and it's Delia. So you laugh. Mm. You laugh.
1: I, I was just reading about that one. I can't mm-hmm, wait.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think we're running out of time, even though I could talk to you all day.
2: Well, thank you, because, you know, this is all we talk about. I don't know what's going to happen when this book comes out. Well, we have, we're working on the new one now. So there we go. Yes, gonna... which. Um, Very excited about that one.
1: Me too. So we're going to hang up and then I'm going to hear more about the new one. You got it. Of <laughs> okay.
2: course. Okay. Bye, Adrian. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Erin Leaf, and until next time, this has
2: been Books Connect Us.
0: Her latest work is The Good Left Undone, a lush, immersive novel about three generations of Tuscan artisans with one remarkable secret. Epic in scope and resplendent with the glorious themes of identity and belonging, The Good Left Undone unfolds in breathtaking turns.